0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: How are you Hernandez from the Washington
0: Post. This is Cleve with The Washington
1: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 28th. Today, how police are gaining access to home security footage veggie burgers get caught up in a food fight and why the Brexit deadline just got tighter.
2: So Ring is a doorbell camera company that homeowners can use to keep track of who's knocking on their door. They're also a company that works with police agencies across the country, helping them get video from homeowners' cameras and kind of chase it down and help them pursue crime.
0: Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Post.
2: We didn't really know how many police agencies they were working with. And Ring is now telling us that it's more than 400 across the country. It's way more than anybody really expected. And it's raising all of these big questions about what do the homeowners know? What do the people who are caught on camera know? And how much video evidence can police pull in pursuit of finding a criminal?
0: So when you say that Ring is partnering with law enforcement, they're basically taking videos from people's homes, from people's front porches or backyards and they're sending them to local police departments.
2: It gives the police what's called a neighbors portal and so If I'm an officer, I can go into my special ring portal and draw a little box around the neighborhood that I want to find video of. And it'll send out these emailed requests to all of the ring users in that little box and say, hey, this police officer is chasing whatever crime. Do you have any video from within this bounds that you're okay with sending to the police? You can say, yes, I'd love to help law enforcement in this important fight for justice. Or you can say, no, I'd rather keep my video to myself.
0: So how did you find out about this new program that is getting people to share their private home surveillance footage with
2: police? So part of my job in looking at technology is thinking about surveillance and thinking about the microphones in our pockets, the the GPS in our pockets, the the cameras that we're installing in our doorbells. And so Ring's partnerships with police are about a year old, and they've been sort of filtering up to the surface. We've been hearing about them kind of sporadically as they've been announcing them with smaller police departments across the country. But I wanted to know in like a really full way, like how many of these partnerships are there? What videos can police really receive? And what do the homeowners know about what their videos are doing? And how much power do they have over this private material that they're recording at their doorstep, you know, because these cameras are motion detecting, they capture a lot. I mean, if you have one at your doorbell, it not only captures when you and your family are going into your house and leaving, but it also captures your neighbors. And every delivery person and salesperson and... Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door, they're all going to be caught on camera, whether they know it or like it or not. And so, you know, I've been chasing this for a while and trying to talk to experts and law professors and the company as well. And the company is now starting to say they're starting to make more of these details public.
0: Did they tell you definitively how many partnerships they have established with various police departments?
2: Yeah, I'd been pressing them for a while. And finally, they said, yes, we'll provide you data and a map that shows every one of these agencies. We'd heard and estimated that there were a number of these police agencies across the country, but we had no idea how big the count really was until Ring told us. And they told us it was more than 400 across the country.
0: More than 400 police departments are doing this.
2: Yeah, more than 400. And in some states like Florida, there's like dozens and dozens, like more than 67 or something. And, you know, so these partnerships have serve the purpose of like blanketing whole parts of major states, whole metro areas under this camera lens. And so there's huge questions about privacy and civil liberties and all that.
0: So what did Ring say about this?
2: Yeah, so I did talk to the company. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that Ring is owned by Amazon, whose founder Jeff Bezos also owns The Washington Post. But, you know, I came to them as an independent journalist trying to understand more, and they told me, you know, the user is in control. They can get their request from the police and say, no, I never want to get this request again. And that, you know, it's up to them whether they want to work with police. And yet, that's just the camera owner. Anybody who's going up to your door is going to be caught on camera. And, you know, this footage can be shared by the homeowners onto, like, what Ring calls its social network, which is called Neighbors. And it's like a stream of local crime and suspicious bumps in the night. And people can post that footage onto that social network. None of it is blurred. None of it is censored in any way. So when you're scrolling through it, you'll get lots of images of kids knocking on the door selling candy or -or trick-or-treating or delivery people or salespeople. None of those people really expected to be blasted onto this huge social network that's seen by everybody, including local police.
0: And to your point, the people who own this this footage from these cameras, oftentimes there are a lot of people who are also being caught on camera who live around there, who aren't just people delivering packages or knocking on the door, but if you are a neighbor, if you share a backyard with someone, oftentimes these cameras are basically capturing what's happening on your front porch too or in your backyard.
2: This is why they call it the new neighborhood watch. And when we think about neighborhood watches in America, you know there's a troubling history there where sometimes they can be really good in helping find bad mysterious stuff happening in your neighborhood but they can also point out people as like creepy strangers when really they're they're doing nothing wrong and so when you're empowering this neighborhood watch and you're creating this place for effectively strangers who live on the same block to talk amongst themselves and Point to people as not belonging in that neighborhood. That creates all sorts of issues. And you know, the system is really empowering that kind of discussion by adding video into the mix and adding audio and adding people's faces uh, who who never expected to be caught on camera. So, yeah, I mean, I think you know, when we're thinking about a new neighborhood watch, that can be concerning to people because they don't want to be watched in a neighborhood. They don't want to be subject to whatever the homeowners on the block they're passing by think about how they look or whether they belong. And, you know, I think those are real questions to to deal with.
0: Is this something that Ring is planning to do more of in the future?
2: Yes, they're really aggressively trying to cement more police partnerships they say the more police the more users the better the system can get and they point to a number of success stories of you know lost dogs returning home and police catching the bad guys it's very wholesome yeah very wholesome and you know there is an interesting sort of family dynamic where you see like dad's talking through the doorbell camera to their you know little child who's getting home and and yet you know there's this huge criminal justice component and Ring and Neighbors are all about public safety and catching criminals. So there's a flip side of it. And I mean, and that's what these cameras and surveillance systems really do. They they force us to confront both the positive and the negative of always being watched.
0: And what does it say that it sounds like Ring hasn't been completely forthcoming about exactly where these partnerships are and the scope of this kind of new application for their cameras in terms of law enforcement? So
2: they say, you know, every time we've had or m- many of the times we've had police agencies sign up, we've put out like a little alert in the app to tell people like, hey, your local police are online. So there's been some information in dribs and drabs, but nobody really got a sense of the scale of how how big this partnership infrastructure was nobody really knew that they were up to more than 400 agencies the best guess that everybody had was way less than that so um you know i think it just goes to the um big tension in this which is that for a lot of homeowners they're okay with sharing their video to police but for a lot of people they're not they see this as a step toward Big Brother, a step toward this huge surveillance system where police can see a lot about us that we're not always really that comfortable with. And so, you know, I think they're sensitive to both the public safety side and also the worries about civil liberties and freedom of expression um, in this country. So I think they're probably going to try and be more public about this kind of information. They've been holding out for a while and and really telling people how many partnerships there are, I think they're starting to recognize they, they can't just be silent about this kind of thing anymore.
0: Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Washington Post.
3: Meat, the traditional cattle industry, has watched as Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat as they've kind of muscled in and started to take market share.
0: Laura Riley reports on the business of food for The Post.
3: The beef industry is pushing back and saying, wait a second, you can't use the word meat. We're the only meats and you can't use hamburger or sausage or hot dog or some of these other things that are strictly and unequivocally reserved for meat. This fight has turned into a legal battle after several states
0: passed laws prohibiting companies from using labels like meat or burger if the product didn't come from an animal. Now, companies like Beyond Meat and Tofurky are getting help from the ACLU. And they're arguing that they should be able to call their plant-based
3: products whatever they want. Tofurky, is trying to not have to repackage all of its products and also is just taking a stand against the cattle ranchers saying, you don't own these words. So I was a vegetarian for many years in my
0: childhood, and I remember eating a lot of veggie burgers, a lot of Morningstar kind of fake sausage stuff. And it's not like fake meat is a sort of new invention. So why is it that now we're getting to this moment where cattle ranchers are trying to protect their brand so
3: aggressively when in the past they didn't really worry about it? Well, they didn't perceive Morningstar as a foe, you know? There was no competition there. So those products were largely geared towards vegans and vegetarians. So this new raft of alt-protein is very, very um, aggressively being marketed to omnivores and flexitarians, people who eat meat but who are choosing for whatever reason, for ethical reasons or for health reasons— to go lighter on the meat and maybe cut it out a couple days a week. And so I think that this is a much more of a direct threat to cattle. And cattle ranchers have kind of come under fire from a number of different avenues recently. There have been a whole bunch of reports. There's a UN sustainability report a couple weeks ago. There was the Eat Lancet report in January that really ruffled a lot of feathers because it said overtly, for human health and for planetary health, eat less red and processed meat. So it wasn't so much, you know, all of these reports are not so much don't eat meat, it's specifically red meat. So I think that the cattle industry is feeling uh, under siege from a number of different regions. And then you have things like tariffs and incredibly horrible weather conditions this past year. So it's been been hard times. And I think the specter of these alt-meats scooping up their their lunch has has really alarmed them so when it comes to these legal efforts
0: by the cattle ranchers to try to protect their brand and protect the word meat or burger how successful have they actually been and what is the like legal arguments that they're making for why they get to be the exclusive user of terms like beef
3: well, they haven't been super successful. So there have been 30 states that have, have uh, tried to, to introduce a bill about this. So far, Arkansas went into effect in March and Missouri went into effect in May. And those are the only two thus far. I think there are some that have passed but have not gone, won't go into effect till the end of the year. And Tofurkey, which is kind of a little bit Alarming or amusing in a way that they are the ones who've come to the fore. They've joined together with the ACLU and they have filed suit to say this is an infringement on our First Amendment rights. And then also the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. So they were they are complaining that if this goes into effect, if their product is basically scooped up as in violation, that they will lose you know, money associated with that product, the because, loss of product.
0: Because it would be so expensive to have to bring back all the various Tofurky packages all over the – Sure. And, and so all it's these places. the cost and to
3: change the marketing and the packaging. And, you know, for a company that sells into every state, if you have a couple of states that you have to have all different packaging for, it becomes a real logistical – problem as well as just, you know, kind of reprinting packaging. And I will say that there are some packages. So Beyond Meat has a a, a meaty crumble that you would kind of add to a spaghetti sauce, that kind of thing. And it says meaty, right, front and center. It has a picture of a cow on the front, although the cow is like made of vegetables. So I think, (laughs) I I don't know, the the astute observer is not going to be completely confused by this. But I do think that there is some argument to be made that, you know, in the way that Fruit gummies for kids that are 100 percent just gummy bear garbage should not have a picture of an or you know an orange or an apple on the front of the package. It's misleading. So it makes I, I think, you think that, that is actually made yeah, out of fruit, that it's or, made of what, fruit. or that. It would- so I, I think that this is a problem in a lot of food packaging. That it's kind of wishful thinking. So I, I can see. I mean, I talked to cattle ranchers who said, "Hey, I'd go to the grocery store with my kids, and they're gonna they're gonna pitch a fit." And so I'm just throwing stuff into the cart, and I can imagine picking up one of these fake meat products and thinking it's the real deal. I mean, I personally doubt that any American has gone to Burger King and picked up an Impossible Whopper by accident. You know, I think that there's enough buzz right now that these products are fairly clearly alternative meat. I think that argument that
0: companies like Impossible Burger are are intentionally trying to confuse people— is really interesting and kind of says something about where we are as a society and how we think about food now. Because I feel like, at least up until now, it would have behooved vegetarian meat companies to be super clear and super explicit about the fact that they are not made out of meat because they are seeking an an audience of people who want to stay as far away from meat as possible. But that in this new area where it's like people eat meat, but they're trying to think about eating less meat or being a little bit more environmentally conscious, then you see this switch in marketing where it's like that it's not Necessarily beneficial to make it completely clear that your product isn't made out of meat.
3: Yeah. I mean, these products, the new products, especially the ones that are, you know, an impossible burger that bleeds like the real thing, that chews like the real thing, that you get a sear on the way you would a burger, you know, a traditional meat burger, they are geared towards flexitarians or, or omnivores who are intermittently opting for a plant-based, but I really think that what is going on here, it's not even so much about these plant-based burgers that that the cattlemen are afraid of. It's this next round, the the cell-based meat. It is very frightening for them, the idea of uh, meat that is grown in a laboratory from a punch biopsy from an actual animal that never has to die in the name of feeding us. If they can scale that up and make meat in a laboratory that is identical and that's a comparable price why would anyone ever choose to have an anim, you know a, a burger versus a a lab grown burger right so i think that the cattle ranchers are definitely perceiving a legitimate threat on the horizon and i think that nomenclature in that case is going to be really muddy because it is meat it's meat from an animal it's just not meat from an animal that was born or slaughtered in a traditional way and this idea
0: of cell based burgers is that an actual thing that is happening that oh, it's, people can we'll buy? We'll see it
3: by the end of the year. So there are probably, you know, if I, I've talked to one company off the record that says by the end of 2019, it may be into 2020 or even into 2021 before these are widespread, you know, available products in your grocery store, but the, it's coming soon. So imagine uh, there's one company that is working on um, salmon, which is hugely, you know, Americans eat a lot of salmon now. So if you can make it in a laboratory and make it cost effective, that's a lot of salmon rolls and, you know, salmon fillets on the grill. I think that, that there are real reasons to think that there will be a huge pivot in the way we eat in the next couple of years.
0: Laura Riley reports on the business of food for The Post. And now one more thing.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you very much for
1: coming in. As, as I said on the steps of, of Downing Street, we're not going to wait until October the 31st before getting on with our plans to take this country forward.
0: On Wednesday, Queen Elizabeth approved a request from Prime Minister Boris Johnson to suspend Parliament for more than a month.
1: My name's Adam Taylor. I'm a staff reporter on the Foreign Desk for The Washington Post.
0: Johnson wants this to happen ahead of the October 31st Brexit deadline. And Adam says that will leave Parliament fewer than 20 days to debate and approve Brexit.
1: One of the things to bear in mind with Boris is that he has pledged that Brexit is going to happen and he is not going to ask for any more extensions or anything else like that. Order. Statement. The Prime Minister. And our mission is to deliver Brexit on the 31st of October for the purpose of uniting and re-energising our great United Kingdom. He, unlike his predecessors, has said he would be comfortable with a no-deal Brexit. And that's when Britain would crash out of the EU without a withdrawal agreement and would potentially cause a lot of trading problems, according to various economists. The reaction in Britain has been very strong to this. It is... A very unusual move for a British government to, to use a suspension of parliament like this in a way that seems to be to get around opposition to British government policy. Jeremy Corbyn, who's leader of the, the Labour opposition party, the main opposition party in Britain, has called it a constitutional outrage and, you know, pledged to sort of uh, push back against it as much as he can.
3: I've protested in the strongest possible terms.
0: Uh, on behalf of my party, and I believe all the other opposition parties are going to join in with this, in simply saying that uh, suspending Parliament is not acceptable, it's
1: not on. What the Prime Minister is doing is a sort of smash and grab on our democracy. And then Jo Swinson, who is the leader of the Liberal Democrats, which is sort of the main pro-EU party at this point, she has also, you know, taken a similar line, which raises the possibility that these two parties could work together to try and push back against Boris.
3: He's pursuing a course of action that does not have a democratic mandate from the public. And he's now saying that he won't give the public their say and he wants to silence the representatives of the public too.
1: You see, from opposition lawmakers, they're already calling it, you know, sort of a, a constitutional crisis, and saying that this is um, something that goes against the British government and the British, the way the British constitution works. Unfortunately for them, there isn't a logical way of of pushing back against this under the way the British constitution, rather, has evolved over the last few years. There is more and more power in the British government, and while they could call on vote of no confidence it's not necessarily clear that they can actually remove Boris Johnson from government.
0: Adam Taylor is a reporter on the Foreign Desk of The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be out on Thursday and Friday, so those shows will be guest-hosted by Carlos Lozada, the nonfiction book critic, recent Pulitzer Prize winner, and occasional guest on the podcast. He is going to be great. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.